the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. I'm going to venture a guess that there's a decent chance today in the majority of pulpits across the country that you'll find a higher than usual number of assisting clergy preaching. Why is that, you wonder? Well, you see, there's this old joke among clergy that whenever Trinity Sunday rolls around, the senior ministers will haze their assistants by making them preach on the Trinity. I guess the thinking is probably that the quickest way to venture off into heresy is to speak on the Trinity, so let's let the newer clergy do it. Well, I'm thankful that that's not the case here at St. Philip's. It's not seen as hazing. It's an honor to preach this morning. And like the doctrines of the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Jesus, the doctrine of the Trinity is something that we speak about year-round, not just on this Sunday. And the reason that the church marks one day a year uh, is not to box in the Trinity for that day only. Instead, we mark our time by the things that matter most to us. And we celebrate the Holy Trinity in particular on this day. And what could be more important than God Himself. I know there are probably more than a few who will consider the Trinity to be confusing and impractical. And you'll be delighted to know that I will make no attempt to explain the Trinity this morning. And that's because the Trinity is not so much a doctrine to be explained as a God to be worshipped. This mysterious truth of the Trinity that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are equal and yet distinct from one another. This glorious doctrine is not something to be explained, but proclaimed. But I do want to address the claim that the doctrine of the Trinity is impractical. On the contrary, I want to suggest to you this morning that knowing God is the single most pressing and practical thing for your life. It is the greatest purpose for which we are made, and it ought to be the greatest aim of your life. What your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your career, your finances, your hopes, your dreams, what they need the most is a right understanding of who God is. Not some new theory, not some technique. The most practical and important thing one can do is to align every area of your life to a right knowledge of God. All of the problems in the world today stem to this one issue. Why has the church fallen into such disarray? Why are there so many Christians who are discouraged and and fearful? Why do people feel purposeless and, and apathetic? It's because they don't know God. Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. To know God. It's the goal of creation. It's the goal of salvation. To know the Trinity. Not just knowing Him intellectually, but knowing Him personally in a relationship. Knowing Him by experience. And if that prospect doesn't overwhelm and thrill you, then it's only because we are so accustomed to thinking such small thoughts of God. I fear that the thoughts of modern man about God are too few and too dainty. 
Modern man is so inundated with great thoughts of himself that there's no more room for great thoughts of God. If he pauses to think of God at all, God is more like an aloof roommate or a benevolent grandfather in the sky rather than the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. Modern man is never surprised by God. What is needed most today, both in and out of the church, is a vision of God that captures our imagination, that thrills our hearts, and that lays hold of our allegiance. And a trite, dainty God who never surprises you, never contradicts you, will never be able to do that. But thankfully, whenever man has come face to face with the living God, he is shocked out of his stupor. And his life is forever changed. And that's exactly what happens in our Isaiah 6 passage this morning. Isaiah encounters God as he really is, and his life will be forever changed. So turn with me to Isaiah 6, and I want us to look at three ways that Isaiah is surprised by God. The first thing that surprises Isaiah about God is his sovereignty. He starts by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The king is dead, but God is not. On February 6, 1952, word spread like wildfire all over the world, rapidly making its way down to Kenya, where it reached Princess Elizabeth that her father, King George VI, was dead. If you were alive to remember, or if you've seen the series The Crown, you know how unstable that time was in England's history. The death of a head of state is always a turbulent time. A nation relies on its leaders for vision and unity, and the death of a monarch inevitably brings uncertainty. Queen Elizabeth has enjoyed the longest reign in the history of the British crown, just recently celebrating 70 years of service. And when she dies, there will no doubt be an overwhelming flood of national grief. But England is unique in that the monarch is not the sole leader of the nation. The uh, parliament and the prime minister bear the weight of government. And in Israel, that was not the case. The king was both the head of state and he bore the authority of government. And the southern king of, of Judah hadn't known a king like Uzziah since Solomon, almost two centuries prior. And Uzziah had enjoyed a long and prosperous reign. If you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, you'll see how infrequent faithful kings were in Israel's history. But Uzziah was, by and large, a very good king. We are told in Second Chronicles that Uzziah was 16 when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uzziah was an effective administrator and an able military leader. Under Uzziah, the nation's boundaries were extended to what they were of old. Commerce and agriculture flourished in his time. And the nations of Israel and Judah were at peace. But as so often can happen in times of peace and prosperity, spiritual complacency began to set in. We are told that near the end of Uzziah's reign, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. He ended up becoming presumptuous and he approached God flippantly, 
taking uh, what was a role that God had given to the priest for himself. And consequently, the Lord struck Uzziah with leprosy. And now Uzziah is dead and the nation's future is uncertain. And Isaiah says, amidst all the instability, that he sees the Lord sitting on the throne. In English, we have two words uh, where Hebrew has two for the word Lord. You see in the text where it says Lord in all capitals, like in verse 3 and 5, that's the Lord's name, Yahweh. The name that was revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, meaning I am who I am. But the word Lord, where just the L is capitalized, that's not a name, but a title. It means king or a royal sovereign. The king is dead, but Isaiah sees the real king sitting and ruling from his universal throne, even at this time. Friends, are we not also in uncertain times today? Are not the nations of the world raging? Are not violence and tragedy before our eyes every day? Doesn't moral and spiritual bankruptcy seem to be ever increasing by the hour? We must see that the true King of the universe is reigning even now. Listen to how the Scriptures speak of the Lord. Daniel said, The kings of the earth come and go, but the Lord's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does whatever He pleases. David said, Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from You, and You rule over all. And the psalmist said, The nations rage, kingdoms totter, God utters His voice, and the earth melts. God is exalted above the rulers of the earth. Kings and kingdoms, they flex their muscles, but they are like ants under the feet of the Lord. Nothing takes this king by surprise. Nothing happens without his express permission. God is the king and he rules in times of prosperity and adversity. He must have our total trust. Isaiah was surprised by God's sovereignty. Are you? Do you know the Lord to be high and lifted up? ruling at this very moment, whose kingdom will never end, whose reign can't be overthrown, and whose power cannot be thwarted. This is what the Lord wanted Isaiah to see first, and it's the first thing that we need to see as well. So Isaiah is first surprised by God's sovereignty, but secondly, Isaiah is surprised by God's majesty. The train of His robe filled the temple. In the kingdoms of the ancient world, the status of a particular king was communicated by the extravagance of his robes. Today, we see trains most commonly on wedding dresses. Trains don't actually serve any practical function. In fact, they make getting around much more difficult, I hear. We've seen some amazing trains here at St. Philip's. We even have a special name, the St. Philip's Twirl, for the maneuver that has to take place at weddings so that no one steps on the bride's train when the time comes to turn and walk out. The whole purpose of a train on a wedding dress is simple. It's to magnify the elegance and the beauty of the bride. It's to showcase her grace and grandeur. 
Imagine a train that extends all the way down the aisle, covering the choir pews, going out over all the pews, extending into the balcony, bursting out the windows, and covering the city of Charleston. Indeed, covering the whole world. Such is the grandeur of the Lord's train. His train is magnificent because He is majestic. And the only response to this majesty whenever someone comes face to face with Him in all His unveiled glory is to revere it. Isaiah lifts his, he lifts his eyes further above the Lord's throne and he sees the seraphim. The seraphim are angels, but these angels are not depicted how people tend to think about angels. They're not cute little fat babies with wings. Their name literally means burning ones. And when they speak, the foundations of the universe shake. That's quite a voice. And it's not some little baby Cupid fluttering around the Lord. Yet even these powerful creatures, these sinless angels, they can't behold God directly because of His majesty. These pure, spotless beings can only approach God with the utmost reverence. They cover their face with their wings because He's too resplendent to look at. They cover their feet for they're standing on holy ground. And one cries to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Repetition in the Bible marks emphasis. Whenever something is repeated twice, it's a way of saying, listen up, this is important. But the strongest form of emphasis in the Bible is the threefold superlative. And the only time that the threefold superlative is used in reference to God is to emphasize His holiness. Holiness is one of those uh, Christian words that's thrown out around a lot, but few times do people actually know what it means. To be holy is to be fundamentally cut off, to be separate. God is, is holy first and foremost because He is one of a kind. He's completely other. He's separate. He's in a class all by Himself. He's the eternal Creator who never came into being. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. Rather, everything else depends upon Him for its existence. This is why even the seraphim, they stand in awe of His holiness. Not because they have sin and He doesn't. Rather, because He is Almighty God and they are His sinless creatures. He is separate from all of His creation. But it is True in a secondary sense that He's also holy because He is sinless. He is separated from sin. He's perfectly pure and undefiled. He is an all-consuming fire that obliterates any and every impurity that comes into His presence. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. And all the earth is full of His glory. That is the manifestation of His holiness. The glory, His glory is the revelation of all that He is. And the angels proclaim that every square inch of the universe is filled with His glory. Isaiah has seen the sovereign king seated on the throne and he has seen God in His majestic glory. And before I move on to the third thing that surprises Isaiah, I want to apply this point about the, uh, the holiness of God, the majesty of God, by looking at an astounding verse in the Gospel of John. 
in uh, John chapter 12, it marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. And in that chapter, John quotes Isaiah 6 twice. And he says these remarkable words in verse 41. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Him. On this Trinity Sunday, let that sink in for a moment. This glorious God who dwells in unapproachable light, whose radiant holiness causes even the sinless angels to cover their faces. This King of creation would take on flesh and become a man. And John would say that he beheld this God in all His glory. And His name was Jesus. Let me ask you, is that how you see Jesus Christ? Do you know, as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, that in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily? That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And until you grasp that, the Christian faith will not only not make sense, but it will be of absolutely no use to you. Jesus will never be worthy of worship until you realize that. He will never captivate your imagination. Your allegiance to Him will never be what it ought to be until you see Him as Isaiah and John saw Him. So Isaiah saw and was surprised by God's sovereignty. He was surprised by God's majesty. And finally, he was surprised by God's grace. The seraphim behold the glory of God and they cover their face and their feet Isaiah beholds the glory of God, and he is undone. He cries out in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. Literally, I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams. Woe is me. Woe is what the prophets used to declare God's judgment. It was what they pronounced when somebody was condemned before God. You see, beholding God's majestic holiness always brings with it a consciousness of our own sin. Isaiah, in coming face to face with God, immediately comes face to face with himself. And in light of God's resplendent purity, he is unable to stand because he is unclean. He knows he deserves God's righteous judgment. And the next thing that he sees is one of these burning ones, one of the seraphim flying right at him, carrying a fiery coal from the altar. And I can't help but think, he must be thinking, this is it, here it comes. He's expecting divine justice to be meted out, but then the coal touches his lips. And to his astonishment, he isn't destroyed. But rather, he's cleansed. His guilt is taken away and his sins are forgiven. Forgiveness always is enabled by a sacrifice from an altar. One commentator suggests that the smoke that is filling the temple is from the fires of the altar where the sacrifice that enabled Isaiah's pardon have already been offered. And this is exactly how God's grace works. Even before we are aware of our sinfulness, God has made provision for it. My friends, our pardon has been procured on account of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross as a substitute for sin. And then Hebrews tells us that He ascended into heaven as our great high priest and He presented this perfect sacrifice once for all upon the altar of God where it was accepted in this very 
throne room in this temple that Isaiah sees. What is astonishing is that Jesus is both the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world and the sovereign king who rules the world with justice. He who sits on the throne is the same who offers himself on the altar. Isaiah is surprised by God's grace and no sooner does he realize his inadequacy than he also comes to find God's exact provision for what he needs. I wonder, have you experienced this coupling of both terror and relief when it comes to God? In C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the main characters is this nasty little boy named Eustace Scrub. As he is on this journey with his cousins who all despise him, he ends up trying to steal dragon's gold. And Lewis says of him, with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he became a dragon himself. And as he looks at his claws and his tail, he is terrified to see himself as he really is. He is undone. His only hope is that Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in the story, has come to him. And he takes him into this garden where there's this giant well full of this beautiful water. And Eustace knows that if he can somehow just get into the water, then all will be made well. But Aslan says that he must first take off his his dragon skin to get into the water. So he begins to peel off his scaly skin like a, a snake shedding. And as it comes off, Eustace notes how wonderful it feels and how nasty it looks. But as he's about to go into the water, he sees his reflection and he notices that he had only just scratched the surface of his skin. There is yet another layer underneath. So he peels it off again and once more, there's another layer there. And he does this three times before Aslan looks at him and says, I must take it off. And as Eustace is retelling what happens later to his cousins, he says, I was afraid of Aslan's claws, but I was desperate. The very first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And when he was done, I saw it there lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker than the others had been. And Aslan picked me up and threw me into the water, and it stung for a second. Then the water became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming, I found that all my pain had gone. My friends, when we encounter Jesus Christ and we see ourselves as we are, we become undone on account of our sin. But we are healed in full by His grace. The burning coals that come from the altar, they don't destroy, but they heal. Have you been undone by God's holiness only to be stunned into silence by His grace? It is simultaneously excruciating and the most wonderful thing you can ever experience. Isaiah has been surprised by God's sovereignty, His majesty, and His grace. And there's actually a fourth surprise at the end of the passage. This time, Isaiah is not surprised by God, but rather, he's surprised at himself. If you want to know how coming to know God the way Isaiah has can change your life, look at verse 8. 
the Lord speaks for the first time and calls Isaiah into ministry. He says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah, in light of all that has just happened, says, here I am. Send me. What God is going to call Isaiah to do will be far from easy. He's going to tell him, listen, uh, no one's going to listen to you preach. No one's going to hear a word of it. The task, that's what I'm sending you to go do. It's a pretty bleak task. But whatever the Lord calls, wherever He calls, Isaiah cannot help but go, given what has just happened to him. You see, when you come to behold the God as He really is, and He exposes your true self, and He pardons, and He heals you, there comes with it a surprising power at work in you. J.I. Packer, in his book called Knowing God, mentions a few results that stem from knowing God. The first is that those who know God have a great energy for God. He occupies so much of their thoughts, they, they spend their time devoted to Him. They speak of Him often. They go frequently to Him in prayer. They can't sit idly by when He's being defamed. Secondly, those who know God have a great boldness for Him. They risk greatly for Him and His causes. They stick their necks out for God. They must obey men or God rather than men. And they can echo Paul's words in Acts 20, I account my life of no value, nor is it precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. Lastly, those who know the Lord have great contentment in God. They know the peace that passes understanding. And they know the peace that comes from being known by Him. They know the, the all-surpassing joy that comes when you are assured that nothing can separate you from this God. Brothers and sisters, have you been surprised by God? Have you been surprised at His, His sovereignty, that He is the King who reigns? Have you been surprised at His majesty, that, that He dwells in unapproachable light? And have you been surprised by His grace, that just at the point in which you were miserable, that He met you with His mercy? If you do, don't be surprised to find an awesome power within yourself that will propel you forward even in the darkest of days to follow wherever He calls. For He who calls is faithful and the journey is worth it.